Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Hey church, my name's Luke. I'm one of the ministers here at PCC. A while back, I heard a comedian who said that a few years ago, we had Steve Jobs, Johnny Cash, and Bob Hope. But now we have no jobs, no cash, and no hope. So please don't let Kevin Bacon die. If you're here today looking for some hope, you've come to the right place. Because our text that we're in this month is one of the mountaintop chapters of Scripture, Romans chapter 8. And it is just chock full of hope for our everyday lives living in this fallen world. Specifically, today, we'll be in verses 18 through 25. And one of the great things about living in our time is that we have all these translations of Scripture available at our fingertips. And so today, we'll look at this text first in the New Living Translation, then we'll take it piece by piece in the New International Version, and later on, we'll read from the message as well. But before we jump into the text, I want you to notice that first, Paul reminds us of the past, then he points us toward the future, And finally, he instructs us on how to live in the present. Let's take a look. Here's what Paul says, Romans chapter 8, verses 18 through 25. He says, yet what we suffer now is nothing compared to the glory he will reveal to us later. For all creation is waiting eagerly for that future day when God will reveal who his children really are. Against its will, all creation was subjected to God's curse. But with eager hope, the creation looks forward to the day when it will join God's children in glorious freedom from death and decay. For we know that all creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. And we believers also groan, even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as his adopted children, including the new bodies that he's promised us. We were given this hope when we were saved. If we already have something, we don't need to hope for it. But if we look forward to something we don't yet have, we must wait patiently and confidently. So the first thing Paul does here is he reminds us of the past. Paul's pointing back to the creation story way back at the very beginning in Genesis chapters one and two, when God makes everything, God makes the light and the dark and the earth and the sky, and he makes plants and animals. And then to top it all off, God makes a man and a woman, Adam and Eve. And God looks at everything that he'd made. And he said, it is good. God made the world good. And then God gives Adam and Eve a job. It's their job to take care of this incredible world that God made. He says, work the ground, till the soil, enjoy the fruit of your labor, take care of this garden. God had placed Adam and Eve in a garden. And in the middle of that garden were two trees, the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Adam and Eve got to eat from the tree of life. And as they did, they were partaking of God's own life, enjoying his eternal goodness. But God also warned them, He said, you can eat from any tree in the garden except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will surely die. In Genesis chapters one and two, the world is good, everything is beautiful, but then 
Unfortunately, along comes Genesis chapter three and Adam and Eve who are living in this good garden. Well, the serpent comes along and he whispers a lie in Eve's ear and Adam forsakes his responsibility as her husband. And together they both look at God and say, you know what? No, thanks. We're going to do it our way. And they do the very thing that God asked them not to do. They eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And, and when they do, they're cursed. And the fact of the matter is that we've all done the same thing. Ever since then, every one of us has looked at God and said, you know what? No, thanks. I'm going to do it my way. It's called sin. And the consequences of our rebellion against God is that not only are men and women cursed, but all of creation is cursed. God made the world good, but sin made the world bad. And the consequences of our rebellion is that God put all of creation under this curse. And for men in Genesis chapter three, God says that part of this curse means that our relationship with the earth is no longer harmonious, that we're going to have to fight the ground to get it to produce what we need. And God says in Genesis three, that for women, part of the curse means that the process of childbirth is going to be excruciatingly painful. And now we see all around us in the chaos of creation that not only are men and women under a curse, but all of creation is. Paul says in Romans chapter eight, it is in bondage to decay. So yes, this is a beautiful world. And yet all is not as it should be. Creation is cursed. Tornadoes and fires and famine and flood and plagues and disease and dementia and viruses. We have divorce courts and battered women's shelters and global pandemics. Marriages fall apart. Kids wander away. Bodies deteriorate. Videos of racial violence and videos of screaming schoolchildren huddled under desks while gunshots ring out. Forearms scarred from crack needles, child-sized caskets, unemployment lines. The world is indeed cursed. Evidence that the consequences of our rebellion against God are astronomical beyond our wildest imaginations, that the bodies we are living in and the planet we are living on is cursed. And this curse is, is painful. And Paul says that, that from the pain of this curse, all creation is groaning. He says in verses 22 and 23, Paul says this, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly. Creation is groaning. We are groaning. The curse hurts. So that's the past that Paul's reminding us of. But then he points us toward the future. And Paul could just say, now, hey, cheer up. Things will be all right. I'm sure it'll work out fine in the end. Because hope is a good thing, Right? Viktor Frankl was a Jewish psychologist who spent years in a Nazi concentration camp. And while he was there, Viktor Frankl noticed that many of the prisoners in the camp would die shortly after Christmas because they'd hoped to be released by then. And so when they weren't, they gave up. As long as they had hope, something to strive for, something to live towards, they could endure almost anything. But when their hope was gone, their lives deteriorated. Or as Dostoevsky said, to live without hope is to cease to live. 
but there's another side of this coin too, because uh, the great theologian Bobby Knight thinks of it a little bit differently. I'm sure you're familiar with Bobby Knight, one of the most successful coaches of all time, national champion here with our Indiana Hoosiers at a great graduation rate among his players. He also happened to have the spiritual gift of chair throwing and chewing out anybody who came within his verbal firing range. Bobby Knight wrote a book once called The Power of Negative Thinking. And in this book, he argued that the word hope is probably the worst word in the English language because he said it's absolutely ridiculous for us to just think that things will somehow end up better in the end. Unless, he says, somebody actually stands up and does something. Now, I don't normally agree with Bobby Knight on much, but I think he's on to something there. That if we're just hoping kind of pie in the sky that everything will turn out okay, that's, that's just wishful thinking. There has to be a reason for our hope. And thankfully, Paul gives us that reason here in Romans chapter 8 when he, he starts our text today by saying, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. He says, put our present suffering and our future glory on a scale, it'll break the scale, not even close. He says this, he says, for the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That phrase there, eager expectation, in the Greek, it literally means head stretched. He's picturing all of creation like it's a little kid up on his tiptoes saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? He says, for the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. In other words, Jesus's death and resurrection wasn't just to make us new. He's making all things new. This is a renewal of the entire creation that in the same way our fall led to creation's fall. He's saying that our ultimate salvation will lead to creation's ultimate salvation. This is what Paul's pointing us towards, and we have this hope too. Paul says that we too wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. So we've seen here that Paul gives us two solid hopes to look forward to in the future. First, Paul says, our bodies will be redeemed. Now, when you follow Jesus, he saves you and he, he purifies you and he begins the process of cleansing your heart. And yet we still live in these fallen, weak, fleshly bodies. We still get tired. We still get sick. We'll still grow old as some of you are feeling. And we still have cravings that we don't like and we still have urges to sin. And yet the day is coming when Jesus returns that we will all be resurrected and he will give us new glorified bodies. And on that day, we will not need Advil or the Adkins diet. There will be no cataracts, no carpal tunnel, no coronavirus, no peanut allergies, no counting calories. We can all eat as much ice cream as we possibly want and it will all be magically, miraculously, simultaneously, both fat-free and delicious. I'm speculating a little bit, of course. But the fact remains that when Jesus returns, we will be resurrected and he will give us new bodies that have neither weakness nor the urge to sin. Paul talks about this coming resurrection for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 when he says, so it will be with the resurrection of the dead. 
The body that is sown perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, then there's also a spiritual body. And in verses 52 through 54, he says this, for the trumpet will sound when Jesus returns, the dead will be raised imperishable and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Tim Keller says it like this, that we can live with this solid future hope because all our best days are ahead of us. And one day, all our painful days will be behind us. We have a great hope. Our bodies will be redeemed. But that's not all. Secondly, Paul says also, all creation will be renewed. All creation will be renewed. A day is coming when this old cycle of futility will give way to a cycle of fulfillment. Chaos will give way to order. Havoc will give way to peace. The day is coming and, and this future hope of heaven that we have is not some kind of faraway outer space existence where we're going to float around on clouds strumming harps. No, heaven is going to be the remaking of this earth. In the beginning, God created the world out of nothing. But in the new creation, God is going to be renewing and remaking this world. God made the first creation out of scratch but the new creation he's making out of scraps, renovating and restoring this broken, corrupt creation in the same way that he renovates and restores our broken lives. Revelation chapter 21, he says, I'm making all things new. God is coming here to make this world what it was always meant to be. And even though right now, creation conspires to harm us, the day is coming in the new creation when, when, when all creation will work together to heal us. Revelation chapter 22 gives us a beautiful picture of this when it says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the, tri of the city. And look what's there. He says, On each side of the river stood the tree of life. He's bringing us back to the garden. And, and look how fruitful it is. It says, Bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. Don't you wish your garden did that? And look, look what creation will do for us. He said, and the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. Back in the beginning, mankind got to live in perfect harmony with God and with creation. We got to eat from the tree of life and enjoy the fullness of God's presence. And the day is coming when we will again live in perfect harmony with God and with creation. We will again get to eat from the tree of life and experience its healing and the fullness of God's presence. And yet, this is the future and this is the past. So how do we live right now in the present? Life in the meantime, living in this fallen world between two trees. Because right now, we live in the tension of knowing that the good is coming and yet still living in the broken. Spouses still die. 
Viruses still mutate. Dreams still shatter. And yet the thing about hope is that hope doesn't grow in a vacuum. Hope never comes solo. Hope only exists alongside suffering, alongside anxiety, alongside fear, alongside tragedy. When we experience the pain and the brokenness of this earthly existence and we choose to believe anyway, that's where hope is born. And Paul acknowledges this kind of pain, this tension. He says, yeah, this life hurts. Look at what he says in verse 22. He says, for the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Life hurts. But did you catch that? Did you catch what he said about our pain? He says it's the pains of childbirth. Now, uh, giving birth to a child is incredibly painful. <laughs> so I've heard. Uh, I've not actually undergone it myself. I've watched my wife go through it a couple times though. And you remember that was even part of the curse, that part of the consequences of our sin for women is that God says, hey, having kids is going to hurt. Which is why I've uh, honestly never really understood the people who want to have kids all natural and feel the pain and, you know, forget the anesthetics. Goodness. I mean, that pain's from the curse. Stick it to Eve. Get the epidural. <laughs> anyway, imagine that you're in a hospital and you hear a woman screaming in pain. It makes a difference if you're in the maternity ward or if you're in the cancer unit. Those screams of pain mean two very different things. One kind of pain brings death, but the other kind of pain brings life. And if you follow Jesus, then you can have the confidence of knowing that the pain that you're experiencing will eventually give way to life, both now and in the future. Because in the future, you will get to experience the new creation. And in the presence, you can have the confidence of knowing that the pain that you're experiencing, God can use it to make you more like Jesus. So what do we do then? How does Paul want us to live in this painful present? Let's look at what he says. He says, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Paul tells us to wait, to wait for the Lord. Now, don't you just love waiting? Uh, don't you just love it when you're sitting at a stoplight and the light turns green, but the car in front of you won't go because the lady's still putting on her lipstick? <laughs> or when you're in the checkout aisle at Walmart and it says 10 items or less, but the line's long because that person in front of you has 75 items in their cart. Or when you're renewing your license at the BMV and you get to sit there for 40 minutes catching up on all their copies of Reader's Digest from 1993. Don't you just love that? No, <laughs> we don't like to wait, do we? In fact, if at any point this stream pauses and has to buffer for even three seconds, there's a little part of you that's going to get irritated, isn't it? Because waiting is hard. And yet all throughout scripture, we see people waiting, waiting on the Lord. God says to Noah, hey, I want you to build an ark. There's a flood coming. But it's 120 years before the first drop of flood water. God comes to a 75-year-old man named Abraham and he says, you're going to have a son. But that baby doesn't show up for 25 years till Abraham's 100. God says to the Israelites, I'm going to bring you out of Egypt and take you to the promised land. 
But first they have to wander through the desert for 40 years. David is anointed as God's chosen king, the next king of Israel. But before he ever sits on the throne, he's going to run for his life for years, hiding in caves. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are in exile in a foreign land, and they decide to take a stand for God. And then they get thrown into a fiery furnace. And then, and only then, in the flames, does God decide to make himself known. And and, and please understand, God could have brought the flood for Noah more quickly. He could have given Abraham a baby instantly. He could have had the Israelites bypass the desert. He could have made David the king right then. He could have skipped the flames for Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, but he didn't. And God promises his people, he promised them. He said, I'm going to send a deliverer, a rescuer from heaven, who's going to make all the wrong things right. And so the people waited. Generation after generation, century after century, until finally he came. But when he did, most people didn't recognize him. And even the ones who did had to keep on waiting because he doesn't rescue them like they thought he would. His kingdom looks different than the one they expected. And they keep waiting. They think the time for deliverance is surely now. They keep waiting for Jesus to kickstart his kingdom, but then Jesus dies. He dies on a cross and the followers of Jesus are confused. They don't know what's going to happen next. They can't see the end because God doesn't raise Jesus from the dead instantly. In fact, all of creation held its breath as the son of God lay there dead in the tomb on Friday night and all day Saturday and Saturday night. And then when Jesus Christ rose from the dead on Sunday morning, the new creation began. The clock started to tick backwards. The curse was being undone. And you can imagine how thrilled Jesus' followers were. And he spends 40 days with them. And then before he goes back up into heaven, right before he ascends to the Father, his followers say to him, Jesus, is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom? Isn't our waiting over? And before he leaves them, Jesus gives them one last command. In Acts chapter one, he says, wait. Don't leave Jerusalem just yet, just wait. And they do, and God sends the Holy Spirit and the church begins. But even then, the waiting isn't over. In the very last chapter of the Bible, Revelation chapter 22, Jesus says that he's going to return. He says, I'm coming soon. And yet it sure doesn't feel soon, does it? as we wait. But in the timeline of eternity, it is. And so we wait for the Lord. Some of you know what it feels like to wait. You and your spouse have been waiting, trying over and over again to start a family. And yet you keep waiting and and you just don't know if it's going to happen at this point. Or maybe you're single and you're waiting to see if there's somebody that God has in store for you. Or maybe you're really looking for some kind of fulfillment. You're looking, you want to do something significant, something that matters with your life. And you keep waiting, looking for it. And it just it doesn't seem to lead anywhere. Or maybe you keep wrestling with that same old sin over and over and over again. And you're tired of waiting for victory to come. Or maybe you're in a marriage that's cold and distant. And you're tired of waiting on someone who seems unable to change. 
waiting on the Lord. John Ortberg says that waiting on the Lord is the hardest work of hoping. But what if the most important thing isn't actually what you're waiting for? What if the most important thing is what God wants to do in you while you wait? Because maybe, just maybe, he wants to remind you that he's in charge and that you can trust him and that your ultimate hope is found in eternity. And yet, here in the present, that's sometimes a tough pill to swallow because we don't know why or how our waiting will turn out. And it sure seems like we've been waiting for a long time. I've heard it said before that God is never late, but he is seldom early. And Peter talks about this in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 and 9, when he says, But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. See, God has a lot bigger clock than we do. I heard about a little girl who was praying one time and she said, God, is it true that a thousand years are like one minute to you? God said, yes. She said, well, then God is a million dollars like just one penny to you? God said, yes, that's true. The little girl said, well, then God, could I have one of your pennies? <laughs> God said, sure, just wait a minute. <laughs> and sometimes that's what it feels like. Like we've been waiting for, for a long time we don't know how it's going to turn out. And, and the waiting seems long because, well, we want God's help. We just don't want God's timing. We want God's penny, but not God's minute. But remember that God might just want to work on you while you wait. And remember what Paul says, these are birth pains we're feeling. God is wanting to bring you to life. I love the way that the message paraphrases our text for the day. The message says, all around us, we observe a pregnant creation. The difficult times of pain throughout the world are simply birth pangs. But it's not only around us, it's within us. The spirit of God arousing us within, we're also feeling the birth pangs. These sterile and barren bodies of ours are yearning for full deliverance. That is why waiting does not diminish us any more than waiting diminishes a pregnant mother. We are enlarged in the waiting. We, of course, don't see what is enlarging us. But the longer we wait, the larger we become and the more joyful our expectancy. The waiting is hard and the waiting seems long. And sometimes it seems like the due date will never get here. I've heard it said before that most months have 30 to 31 days, except for the last month of pregnancy, which has approximately 5 million days. <laughs> Author Henry Nouwen tells a, a beautiful story about this kind of patient waiting. Henry Nouwen was friends with some renowned trapeze artists called the Flying Rudellas. And the Flying Rudellas told Mr. Nouwen about the very special relationship between the two trapeze artists, the flyer and the catcher. The flyer is the one who would swing up and then let go, and the catcher is the one who would grab him. And as the flyer swings up and out on his trapeze, the moment comes for him to release his grip. And he does, and he goes flying through the air. And as he's soaring through the air, the temptation is for him to twist and turn and reach and grasp and look for the catcher. But, the flying Rudellas said, the flyer must never try to catch the catcher. Instead, the flyer must remain as still as possible and wait for the catcher to pluck him out of the air with his big strong hands. 
the flyer must wait in absolute trust that the catcher is there and the catcher will catch him. But until then, he must wait. And some of you are probably tired of waiting right now. In fact, maybe you're ready to give up on waiting and and take matters into your own hands. Do things your own way. But don't get ahead of him. Don't twist and turn and squirm and try to force his hand. Fix your eyes on the glorious future to come and sit quietly in his presence. Wait for the Lord. And as we live in this painful, fallen world in the present, in life in the meantime, between two trees, cling to the tree in the middle, the cross of Jesus Christ, the only place we find our hope. Thank you for listening to the podcast today. It's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of Christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church or would like to plan a visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.